Again, please let us open our Bibles together and turn, first of all, to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. We'll read the entire seven verses of this psalm. Speaking of the Father and of the Son, a psalm of David, Jehovah said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord will send forth the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule you in the midst of your enemies. Your people offer themselves willingly in the day of your power in holy array. Out of the womb of the morning you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at your right hand will strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill the places with dead bodies. He will strike through the head in many countries. He will drink of the brook in the way. Therefore will he lift up the head. And then please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, the first four verses, and then verse 13. First, Hebrews 1, 1. God, having of old time spoken unto the fathers in the prophets by diverse portions and in diverse manners, hath at the end of these days, or in the consummation of these days, spoken unto us in Son. Now, most of the translations insert the word His, but the original says in Son. Whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds. Now, this is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ that the Bible tells us made the worlds. That's much more than one of the many prophets of God. Verse 3 continues, Who, being the effulgence of his glory and the very image of his substance, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had made purification for, of sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, having become by so much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. And then verse 13. But of which of the angels has he said at any time, 
sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies the footstool of thy feet. Again, let's bow together for prayer. Our Father, open our minds now and instruct us from your holy word and exalt our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of all the lords, the Prince of Peace, who is now ruling in the midst of his enemies. O Lord, make his name to be seen to be great in this place today. And let all the underlings whose dust has been created by him and who conduct themselves even this hour around the world only in accordance with his permission, who are a part of the picture of which it is said all things hold together by him, exalt him, magnify him, glorify him, through the earth in this day, in our preaching here in this hour, and in our lives of obedience to follow. Lord, let none leave this place today without giving due honor and recognition of tongue and heart and life to your mighty Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us preach as we ought to preach. O oh God, have mercy upon this servant. Use these feet of clay and this mouth as your own instruments to sanctify saints and save sinners. Lord, establish the truth in us in this hour to a greater degree than it was when we came and magnify your great and holy name here. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We have begun a series on the second coming of Christ. Last time... We introduced the series by briefly stating what would be the wise man's proper attitude in approaching the study. I'll just recite those headings for you. So in case you missed last time, you may understand our spirit and our perspective as we come to this vital study of the Word of God. The wise man's attitude in approaching this study is as follows. He should possess the historically informed recognition that our conclusions regarding this subject cannot finally rest upon the views of men who have held them. In other words, we don't believe what we believe because good men have believed it. That cannot be our final confidence. Second, the wise man should conduct himself within the biblically directed context of a humble and gracious heart. It's a fool who thinks he knows everything there is to know about the second coming. And it's a greater fool who tells others his foolishness. We must be humble and gracious. Humble in recognizing the limits of our own understanding and gracious in our relationship to others who have not come to the same conclusions to which we've come. There are many true men who believe differently on this subject. Third, the wise man should take seriously our Lord's injunction to love God with all our minds and therefore to search the scriptures for light on a difficult subject. This is not easy. 
It's not cheap, and you're not going to learn it all in a weekend seminar or at a prophecy conference or from one paperback you pick up off the shelf of a bookstore. Love the Lord with all your mind and search the Scriptures to study. Now, last time, we began our study by emphasizing in the first place the nature of the return of Jesus Christ. And we emphasized three aspects of that nature. First, the coming of Christ the next time will be supernatural. It will be a great cosmic cataclysmic event in which God himself intervenes directly in man's history. It will not be something that the world will not see. It will not be some silent uh, spiritual movement of God undetected. It will, be, it will cover the globe and the universe and will be a great supernatural event. Second, we also stated that the coming of Christ will be bodily and visible. Now, we're going to say more about that subject as we develop this theme in the next two or three weeks. But let me insert here that when we say he's coming bodily invisible, and you remember, we learned that at least from one passage among others in Acts 1, when the angel said to those disciples who were gazing up into the heavens, why stand you here gazing into the heaven? This same Jesus, and using the name given him in his incarnation, this same Jesus will so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. You wait in Jerusalem till you have power and you go preach his name to all the nations of the world. When we say he's coming bodily, the same Jesus who left bodily is returning bodily. And visibly, we are saying that when Christ comes the next time, it will not be secret. Every eye shall see him. There is no intervening second coming invisible. That's what we're saying. Now, we're going to prove that from the Scriptures. But I want you to understand that's what we mean by what we're saying. Third, the coming of Christ the next time not only will be supernatural and visible and bodily, but it will be sudden. There will not be the kinds of warnings in ahead of time to give the world an ample opportunity to set its house straight. It's the kind of coming that was like his judgment upon Jerusalem in the first century. He that is upon the housetop, let not let him come down from the housetop to get a few clothes and effects to get out of town. Get out of town now. Jump off the roof and head down. There's not going to be time. Sudden, like the lightning that appears in the eastern sky or flashes in the east and appears in the west. Sudden, the world will be overtaken as a thief in the night who comes unexpectedly. And we are taught in the scripture that we are not to be like that thief upon whom that hour comes as a shock to our lifestyle, a shock to our perspective. We're to be ready by serving faithfully our Redeemer so that we'll not be overtaken as a thief overtakes those who sleep and aren't waiting and watching. Now, we emphasized, and I will say it again, though we will say it in the future, the Lord willing, that it is not our primary objective to read the signs of the times. It is our primary objective to watch our hearts. Not to be able to explain the signs, 
but to be able to obey the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our primary objective is not to be gazing into the skies or even into the Middle East, but to be watching our hearts, lest they be overcharged with surfeiting and the cares of this life and that day overtake us as a thief. It'll be like the days of Noah. They will be eating and drinking. They will be marrying and giving in marriage. They will be working in the field and in the factory and sleeping in the bed and saying, Peace, peace, and suddenly destruction will come upon them like travail upon a woman with child. Christ is coming suddenly, shockingly, supernaturally, with cataclysmic overtones in the whole universe in full view of every living thing. Now, we said that. And then we introduced the purpose of his coming last time by laying out the first of two aspects to his purpose in coming. Why is he coming back to the world? And we said in the first place that Christ is coming to bring to full glory himself and his people. And we noted that his glorification in his return is always linked with the glorification of his people. When he's glorified, then we'll, we will also appear with him in glory. When he comes to be glorified in the saints. When we see him as he is, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is at his appearing. And so he's coming to bring full glory to himself and his people. He's also coming in a conjunction with that glory, as the Bible says, to establish the kingdom of God in its fullness. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is the constant prayer of the Christian. When Christ comes the next time, that prayer will be completely and finally answered. His kingdom will have come in its, all, in its fullness and His will will be done in the earth as it now is being done in the heaven. There will be a new heaven and a new earth in which dwells righteousness. That is the hope of the saint and that's what's going to happen when He comes. He will bring to full glory Himself and His people. But to continue today, this purpose of glorifying Christ and his people when he comes has to do with the other aspect of the purpose of his coming. In fact, it's, it's another way of saying what we're about to say. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming the next time in order to complete the work of redemption. He's coming to complete the work of redemption. For the glory of Jesus Christ is nothing more than the glory of his saving person and work. Glorifying Christ means glorifying our Lord and Savior, magnifying him as a Redeemer. What else would be the reason for giving him the name Jesus? For it is he that shall save his people from their sins. Why call him Christ, Messiah, the Anointed One? Because those that are familiar with Scripture know that the Anointed One is the one whom the Father through the Spirit was to anoint for the purpose of delivering his people from their sins. 
He was anointed prophet, priest, and king for the purpose of saving his people. If you noticed in the passage we read in Hebrews 1, God used to speak to the fathers in various times and manners through the prophets. Now he speaks in his son. He's the prophet of God. The last prophet. It's appropriate to make mention again this morning in this world's historical setting that a prophet who has arisen, arisen since the coming, the dying, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ, claiming to be the prophet of God, is a false prophet. God has in these last days spoken in his Son, and his name is Jesus, not Mohammed. We need not tremble at the rash claims of the proud Muslim who believes sincerely what he believes and thinks he will conquer the world with it. He's wrong. Oh, dear brethren, he's wrong. The Lord Jesus will one day be worshipped by Mohammed and all of his followers against their heart, but because there's no other choice. But not only was he the prophet in the passage we read, it says when he had made purification for sins. He was a priest who made an offering. And all of Hebrews opens up the high priestly office of Christ and the superiority of his work as a redeemer. He is a superior priest who makes a superior offering, who has that offering accepted and makes purification. Once for all, he made purification of sins. He dealt with our sins in his own body in the tree. He was the offerer and the offering. God's high priest. But not only prophet and priest, it says when he had made purification of sins, he sat down. Where did he sit down? The sitting is the picture of accomplishment and victory and triumph. The place on which he sat, no less than the right hand of the majesty on high. The right hand of God. What does that mean? In biblical language, that means he sat down on the throne where the king sits. He sat in the place of supreme power over the universe. God's final word to the world, God's priest to save the world, and God's anointed king seated at the throne ruling over the world. And then we read from Psalm 110 and Hebrews 1.13, The Lord God the Father said to his son, Sit down here till I make your enemies the footstool of your feet. And 1 Corinthians 15 tells us he must reign until all enemies are put under his feet. Why must he? Because the Father has ordained that he do. Sit here and reign. Where is he reigning? At the right hand of God. In the midst of his enemies, though. You see that passage in Psalm 110? Not without reference to his enemies, but in the midst of them. He now is reigning in his Jerusalem in the midst of opponents and enemies. And he's going to continue to reign until they're all at his feet. And the last enemy to be put under his feet? Death. And when will that happen? At his coming. So he's sitting to reign now waiting for the hour of his return when even death finally will be obliterated and put under his feet, no longer a threat or an enemy, not even a shadow of it. 
He's coming to complete the work of redemption as God's anointed one. Now, the reason that I'm saying this and emphasizing this today is because of the frequent error, especially in our generations, of looking at the second coming of Christ without reference to the first coming. Viewing the second coming of Christ as some separate entity in God's program without reference to the reason he came the first time. And what I want to say up front is this. The Lord Jesus is coming the second time for the same purpose for which he came the first time. To save his people from their sins. Not to do the same things that he did the first time, but with the same purpose in mind. And it's vital if we're going to understand the second coming to get that straight. I don't have time to tell you all the reasons that it's vital, but it is. It's crucial that we do not separate the second coming from the first as to purpose, or we will greatly err in our understanding of biblical prophecy in the return of Jesus Christ. There are many in our day who spend their time doing nothing but researching, talking, and thinking about the second coming. And they see all sorts of this, that, and the other. But they're so consumed with last things that they have forgotten first things. They put last things first and left out the first things. They look at the signs in the heavens and forget the word of God. It's very important that we understand the reason Jesus is coming back. Now, the relationship between the first and second comings could be analyzed through different eyes and in different ways. But here's one way. The first time, he came to establish his kingdom. Remember what he said? The kingdom of God is among you. He announced the kingdom. The second time, he's going to come as king and come as one on the throne of judgment and on the throne of glory to consummate that kingdom. The first time, he came and bound Satan. He told us that in John 12:31, the prince of this world is cast out. Again, in Matthew 12, he talked about the strong man. When, remember when the Pharisees questioned his rights and his ability to cast out demons, and they wanted to attribute that to the devil. And he said, what you don't understand is that the reason I'm able to cast out these demons is because I've overcome the strong man. You can't break into the strong man's house and spoil his goods unless you first bind the strong man. And if I am casting out the demons and the power of the strong man, the devil, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's what he said to them. He asserted the rights and the power of his kingdom by casting out demons as a demonstration that the devil was now hindered and limited and could not resist the triumphant march of Jesus Christ to his appointed ends. So he came and bound Satan. Next time, he's going to come and destroy Satan and cast him into the lake of fire. He's put limits on him. He's spoiling his goods the first time. The second time, he's going to remove him from the scene. First time, the Lord came to inaugurate the last days. There are lots of passages to which I could direct your attention. The one that we just read in Hebrews 1.1, at the end of these days. Acts chapter 2, in the latter times. 1 Peter chapter 1, in the latter days. Hebrews 9, 26. And I want you to turn to that one. I'm trying to minimize the time it takes to turn to all the texts. But I want you to see that it is a New Testament principle that we are living and 
they were living when these words were written in the last days. Be careful in your terminology, brethren. When you talk to your friends about the last days, or when you hear radio preachers, or when you read literature saying we're in the last days, don't misunderstand that. What many mean by that is that we just recently have entered the last days. And what we mean is it's got to happen in the next couple of years. That's not what the Bible means with the last days. When it uses the term last days, it includes the days from the time these things were written right up till now. The whole period of time, roughly, between the establishment of his kingdom in the first coming and the consummation of his kingdom in the second coming. This is the last age of human history. The last period of the earth's history. May we say it? This is the last dispensation of God's saving purpose and revelation. Uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26, speaking of the sacrifice of Christ, says, Else must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once when? At the end of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. When did Jesus die on the cross? He died at the beginning of the last age, the end of the ages. The last days started then. And the church has been living in the last day. The last days. He inaugurated those days when he came. In 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul speaks upon uh, the things coming upon us, upon whom the last days have come. The last time, the last age. This is the last days. Not because something is corked in history in the last ten years. These have been the last days in every generation of the Christian church since the first century. And when Jesus came the first time, he inaugurated the last age of man's history on this planet. When he comes the next time, he'll consummate the ends of the ages. Galatians 1.4 says that the Lord Jesus was manifested that he might deliver us from this present evil age. Well, dear brethren, you have not been completely delivered from this present evil age. You have been and you haven't been. You are seated with Christ in heavenly places, are you not? You have been raised up together with him. You are seated with him, but you have not yet been utterly delivered from this evil age. You are a citizen of overlapping ages, this age and the age to come. You still are vulnerable to the things going on in this world. That's why you needed to be warned in 2 Timothy 3 that in the last days grievous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God, unthankful, unholy, disobedient to parents, etc. From such turn away. We're told by the Apostle. You are living in an era and in a time in which the, this age does affect you. You're not in heaven untouchable by this age. It drives you. It lures you. The Babylon of this world, the harlot, the false church pulls you to, to error. The false prophet deceives. The beast of the nations of the world rising up against Christ challenge every thought and threaten us and scare us so that if we stand for Christ, we die. So we think of growing weary in well-doing. And the scripture says, he that endures to the end will be saved. Here is the patience of the saints, etc. The Lord Jesus Christ in his first coming introduced his kingdom, bound the devil, inaugurated the last days. 
in his second coming, he'll consummate the kingdom, destroy the devil, and put an end to the last days and usher in the age to come. At the first coming, he placed hope in our hearts by his resurrection from the dead. First Peter chapter 1. He has begotten us together again to a living hope. Next time he comes, he will fulfill that hope by raising us from the dead. He established that hope in us by raising it by himself rising. He will fulfill that hope by raising us. Some brief description of the comparison between the first and second comings of Christ. But let me concentrate with you this morning on this saving relation between those first and second comings. And in order to show you that the second coming of Christ is to save us, just as the first coming of Christ was to save us, I want to direct your attention to a few passages of Scripture. Hebrews 9, verse 28. Now, we just read that the first time he came, he made an offering of himself at the end of the ages for our sins. But in verse 28 of chapter 9, it says, So Christ also, having been once offered to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time apart from sin. And that means the next time he appears, it is not in order to deal with sins in the redemptive sense. He's not coming to make sacrifice for sins next time. That's not the reference point the next time he comes. He's already handled that issue the first time he came in his sacrifice. But the second time he'll appear, apart from sin, to them that wait for him, unto what? Unto salvation. When I first began to study the Bible as a young teenager and was a new Christian, uh, we use the terminology, I got saved and I am saved and I've been saved. And that's good terminology, but what are the problem with some of that was there was a dimension of salvation often overlooked. There was a past tense view of salvation that people pointed back to a time when they made a decision, a time when they came to Christ, or a time when they experienced a, a turning or a conversion, and that's good to point to. It's valid to look back to the time when you first believed and to give God thanks. But salvation has to do with much more than that beginning and that past. The, the Bible speaks of a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. The Bible speaks of Christ coming the second time unto salvation. Here's some other passages. Romans chapter 13 verse 11. An interesting phrase. And, and by the way, these, these passages helped me to broaden my understanding of God's saving purpose and work. It helped free me from a static opinion and view of salvation. Have you ever had the experience of accepting Christ into your heart? The answer, yes, then don't worry about anything, you're all set. And as one modern uh, preacher says and one famous writer says, um, even if you become a living murderer and deny everything you've ever believed, if once you ever accepted Christ, you will go to heaven no matter what. The Bible doesn't teach that, and that's one of the reasons people get confused. The Bible does teach that if you truly are saved, you'll stay saved. But the Bible doesn't teach that if you ever made a decision about salvation and later repudiate the whole thing, that you'll still go to heaven no matter what. The Bible teaches that if you truly made the kind of decision that saves... That decision will continue to dominate the direction of your life and you'll continually be making that same kind of decision. If you once truly repented, you will continue truly to repent. If you once truly believed, you will continue to believe to the saving of the soul, according to Hebrews 10. You will not draw back unto perdition. We are not of those who draw back 
of entrepreneurship from a profession. We are of those who believe unto the saving of the soul. Hebrews 10, the last verse of the chapter. But in Romans 13, 11, the apostle says, And this, knowing the season, that already it is time for you to awake out of sleep. You see this sense of urgency of the first century apostle in the last days? For now is our salvation nearer to us than when we first believed. Now, that's New Testament language. It's speaking of a dimension of our salvation that has not yet been done. There is a salvation that we don't have yet, but we're nearer to it than when we first believed. There's a progression from one stage to another. And that which we really hope in ultimately, we're nearer to it now than when we first believed. You see the progression there. That's biblical language. I'm not trying to confuse you. I'm simply recognizing the biblical idea of a fuller picture of salvation. Then 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8. And 9. We see something of this same context. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. But let us, since we are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. That word hope directs our eyes to the future. The hope of salvation. There is a salvation in which we soundly and firmly hope. We don't yet have it in our hands But we do have our hope firmly set on it. But then he goes on. For God appointed us not unto wrath, but unto the obtaining of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the future, we don't have to tremble as though wrath is going to fall on us. God hasn't appointed us to that. Wrath is coming. But God hasn't appointed us to that. Don't tremble, Thessalonians. God has appointed you to salvation. There's a salvation waiting for those that wait on the Lord. He will appear the second time to them that wait for him unto salvation. Now, who is the Lord Jesus Christ? He is God's prophet, priest, and king. And it is in the kingship of Christ that we most fervently see this development of salvation. He is bringing in the consummation of the ages by his kingly authority. It is primarily as king that he rules over men at this day and sits on a throne running the world according to his ultimate purpose so that we may say all things are being worked together for good to those that love God, to those that are the called according to his purpose. He's king. In the Old Testament, there's the preparation for his kingship. In the Gospels, there's the the declaration of his kingdom. In the book of Acts, the proclamation of his kingdom, as you follow Peter in Acts chapter 2. In the epistles, the explanation of his kingdom. And in the book of Revelation, the consummation of his kingdom. Preparation, declaration, proclamation, explanation, consummation of the Lord Jesus Christ as king. Think with me in the minutes remaining, first of all, of the mighty power of his kingdom. 
This is the Lord Jesus Christ. We read a wonderful passage this morning in Matthew as he showed his authority. This is the one that has power to give life to those whom he pleases. John chapter 5. He raises the dead when he wants to. He calls Lazarus out of the tomb and leaves everyone else in that graveyard alone. He sovereignly raises the dead. Whom he will, when he will. The hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. He calls the dead from the spiritual graves and raises them by his sovereign power. He has authority to do it because he's king. And there's not a single person in the world on whom the Lord Jesus has set his affections and purpose who will fail to come forth from the spiritually dead when Jesus calls him. When the Lord decides to save, he saves. If you're one of his chosen, you're going to be saved. And I trust that won't make you rest back and say, well, then it's not up to me because no, he doesn't leave it that way. He commands you to repent and believe the gospel. But he has power to save. You wouldn't be saved if he didn't. You who are Christians are Christians because he raised you from the dead. He has the power over nature. The curse has been removed in his cross. He shows it by healing sick bodies, by stopping the wind, by changing water to wine. He has power over the dust of the earth in resurrecting bodies. He has authority over all the world. Dear brethren, don't let your hearts tremble. When a madman from the Middle East begins to threaten the world's peace, the Lord Jesus Christ is in control. He said, but what if, they, what if a terrorist bomb hits the plane when I'm on it? Then you'll go to heaven. What are you afraid of? Is that simplistic? It's biblical. Is that skirting the issue? No, that is the issue. What's the worst thing a wild man can do to you but usher you into the ultimate of your salvation? And to take you into the presence of your Savior, which is far better, according to the Apostle. This man has authority, sitting at the right hand of God. Sit here till I make your enemies the footstool of your, your feet. He has all power in heaven and earth. Therefore, go preach. Dear brethren, should we stop preaching if they threaten to persecute us? No, because the one that sent us has all authority in heaven and earth. And until he's finished with us, they can't touch us. That's what's meant in Mark 16, even in the spurious passage, when the Lord says as they go preach the gospel, they'll tread on serpents. They'll, they, they, nothing's going to hurt them. Well, brethren, we have tread upon serpents in our ministry. We don't handle snakes in the worship service. We do confront them in the streets of the cities and in our literature and in the letters we get and in the phone calls we get and in the opposition we experience in the slander of our time. But they can't harm us until we're finished with our task. Because our king has authority over all that. Some of you may be thinking, we've heard this, we've heard it, we've heard it, move on. I tell you, that kind of pride will, will beg to hear it someday when you get afraid and forget these passages. You're not that smart. You tend to forget. And the devil has tricks up his sleeve to shock you and make you forget. You need to have this stuff pounded into your conscience. You're too tied to this world. You're too dependent on your bodily comforts. And when they're removed, you're going to forget for a minute Christ is still in control. Much easier to believe it when as long as your belly's full. Because your idea of his control is that he's in control to keep your belly full. And the day your belly's not full, you're going to think he lost control. But you see, he's not here to keep your belly full. It's a dangerous thing to have a full tummy. He's here to make his church full. 
And that's what he's going to accomplish by people like us. The prince of this world has been cast out. The kingdom of God has come upon us. It's an awesome and a mighty power ruling over everything. He is the head of all principality and power. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the devil. He's in charge of the devil and all of his hosts. The devil will not do anything that he sneaks up and surprises Jesus with. He doesn't have any tricks that the Lord doesn't know about. And he will not win anybody the Lord doesn't let him win. He'll not touch anybody the Lord doesn't want him to touch. He is not in control. Don't tremble for him. We tremble not for him. One little word shall fail him. That's the note of the Reformation. As we get acquainted again with the Bible, instead of the superstition of Rome, the Lord is in control. He has raised him from the dead. He's Lord of the living and the dead. He has despoiled principalities and powers, triumphing over them in his cross. The mighty power of his kingdom. But the essential purpose of his rule also needs to be thought upon. To save his people by subduing his and their enemies. You see, to put his enemies under his feet is the same as to save us. His enemies are our enemies. The last enemy, which is death. What's that going to mean to you? What's it mean to you? Does that have anything to do with you? Is it just that we're going to stand off in the distance and notice Christ winning some victories for himself? That's not the reason Jesus is here. He never wins any victory except that he wins it for his people. He exists, dear brethren, for you. All that he's doing is for you. That's what Romans 8.28 means. All things are working together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. Everything he's doing, even what is bringing glory to himself, is going to be for us. It is his glory in the church. He's head over all things to the church. Don't lose sight of that. This is not an objective thing where we stand at a distance and admire his triumphs and wish we could have partaken. If we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. He died for us. He rose for us. He intercedes for us on that throne. He's coming again for us. You can't separate yourself from his triumphs. That's the purpose of his saving triumphs. To put down his enemies and Ours. The purpose of his rule. The exercise of his kingly rule is for his people. Now let me inject here. Two things. First, the devil had the power of death according to Hebrews chapter 2. He got that power through the temptation in the garden whereby we violated the law that said the soul that sinneth it shall die. So the sting of death is sin. Where does sin get its strength to provide a sting of death when we do it? From the law. The law says, you sin, you die. So sin gets its strength to kill from the law. If the law didn't say you die when you sin, sin wouldn't have the strength to kill. But sin gets its strength from the law. How do we take care of that strength? How do we eviscerate that strength? How do we annihilate the strength of sin? Christ dies and fulfills the demands of the law, and swallows up the law's demands, and there's no more strength in sin to kill those that believe in Christ. Make sense? That's biblical. It's amazing how much we read, how much we study, and how much we don't know. Are those simple, clear, repeated, biblical themes. 
The devil had the power of death, but Revelation in chapter 1, verse 18 shows Christ exalted and says he has the keys of death. He's taken the powers of death. He's the one that has the power of death, and one day he will reveal the full power he has over death in his people. He's already risen from the dead. And yet his body still dies. The church still dies. People still die. And dear brethren, we are not to, to remedy that before he comes by miracles or by telling Christians that it's never God's will that a Christian die except by natural causes. Or by telling a Christian that in the if you really believe enough in the cross, you should never die. You're going to keep dying until Jesus puts your death behind you by raising you from the dead the way he's been raised from the dead. Each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. After that, they that are Christ's at his coming. So it's a delightful thing to see the devil had the power of death, but now Christ does. But there's another thing I want to assert in the essential purpose of his rule. He's here to save his people. He's exercising his kingly rule for his people. Who are his people? Who are the people of Christ? And I insert it today because it's on the minds of many. What's it going to do with the Jews in Israel? Well, my Bible tells me in Ephesians 2, again in Galatians 3, in several passages, that his people, the new Israel, are made up of Jews and Gentiles who believe in his Son, the church of Jesus Christ. His rule is, has as its end the blessing of the spiritual seed of Abraham that came through Christ. His, his purpose of rule is to bless his church, to deliver his church against all her enemies. That's why Revelation 17, 14 says, He shall overcome... that are with him, the called, the chosen, and the faithful, the church of the Lord. And to have the dispensationalists say that the church never appears in the book of Revelation from chapter 4, verse 1, all the way to the end, uh, eviscerates the whole intent of the book. The whole purpose is to comfort seven churches in Asia Minor and every other church to come along in their train that Jesus will win and you'll triumph with him if you're faithful to him. The Lord Jesus Christ is exercising his rule for his people, not for a people that reject him in Palestine, but for everyone who receives him, both Jew and Gentile throughout the world. The time is coming, dear lady, he said to the Samaritan woman, when they that worship the Father will neither worship in this mountain in Samaria nor in Jerusalem, but they that worship the Father will worship him where will they worship him? In spirit. That's where. In the city called spirit. Where will they worship him? In truth. Not geographic preference, but throughout the world. Therefore, go preach to all of them. That's the New Testament. That's the gospel. That's the saving intent of God. And then he says, for such the Father seeks to worship him. He has no interest in my demanding that he bless me because I've placed my feet on a piece of real estate on the Mediterranean. It matters not where your feet are planted. If you're in Christ, you're blessed. 
If you're out of Christ, you're cursed. He's made him a curse for us. Outside of him, the curse still rules. Let us establish in our minds clearly that whatever God is doing about Israel, he's not doing any blessing on any Jew apart from Jesus Christ. And whatever he's building in Palestine, it'll all flow into his glorious bride, the church. Outside of that, there's no blessing. Dear brethren, search the scriptures and free yourself from a great damaging error of our generation. We were told in Luke chapter 1 that the Lord Jesus Christ was the horn of salvation from the house of David according to the prophets and according to promise. Everything he is, it was was what God was predicting the whole time. And then it said, he's coming to give us salvation from our enemies. Salvation from our enemies. The carnal Jew thought that meant the Romans were all going to be killed and the Jews were going to be in charge again. That was not what he meant. The last enemy's death. Not Roman death, but death. Not a soldier, but sin and death and the devil and hell. That's the enemies that Christ is giving us victory over. But notice with me, having briefly seen the mighty power of his kingdom and the essential purpose of his rule, the divine order of his reign. There's an order here. And this is important so that we don't get mixed up. When did Jesus ascend? He ascended in the first century. Acts chapter 2. And this ascension in Acts chapter 2 is connected with his resurrection in the Bible where it says God raised him up and seated him on the throne of David. Where is Jesus Christ today? According to Acts chapter 2, he is sitting on the throne of David the king. He is on the king of Israel's throne today. He is on the throne of Israel. He is right now ruling over Israel. Which Israel? This one. The Israel of God. They that are not Jews according to the flesh, but those that are Jews according to the Spirit. Not the circumcision of the flesh, but the circumcision of the heart. Nicodemus, a good Jew, you have to be born again. Your Jewish birth doesn't save you. It cannot save you. It's an, it's an obstacle in the way. Get that one out of the way and get born again. Become something other than a Jew. Become a saint of God in Christ. Then you'll be a true Jew. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but one inwardly. That's the Bible doctrine. And it's very important. And don't hate that, brethren. Don't prefer the Jews to such a way that that comment bothers you. I'll tell you why. Because you eviscerate and eliminate the blessing on the Gentiles when you do that. You are heirs together with Abraham of the promise. Not a lesser promise. Not a second class blessing, but the same blessing. What was the promise? In thee all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In thy seed. And who is the seed? Christ. Oh, thank God that he didn't keep it within the house of Israel. I wouldn't be preaching it. I wouldn't be glorying in it. Now, does that mean that we therefore hate Jews? Absolutely not. We love Jews just as much as we love Gentiles. And on the same basis. 
Does it mean we prefer a Jew over a Gentile? No, no. We cannot be respecters of persons and be like our Father in heaven. We preach the gospel to every creature. You say, well, what if God does still have some purpose in it? That's God's business. But I'll tell you what his ultimate purpose is. It's to bring all kinds of people together. Men and women, boys and girls, all colors, all races, all tribes, all languages, Jew and non-Jew, in one body, in one Lord, in one faith. One baptism. One God. One kingdom. One location. Now you answer to me, if there's going to be a body of Christ in Jerusalem in a future world, and also a body of Christ in heaven, in which one is Jesus going to dwell? Where is he going to be? Where is the king? If he's going to be in Jerusalem, my Bible says I'm going to be able to sit in his presence. He's going to dwell in the midst of, of my church. I don't want to be shuffled off someplace else, not according to Scripture. And have the Jew get Messiah in downtown Jerusalem and the Gentile church get to go off to heaven somewhere. What's that? There's nothing like that in the Bible. That is the imagination of a generation and a half of Christians that were sincere but in error. The Lord Jesus, the order of his rule and reign is this. He rose the first time to start it. He's the first fruits. But the rest of them, the rest of the crop is not going to be harvested until when? The second time. I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15 as we come to the concluding portion of this sermon. We're laying a vital foundation. Christ came to save people from their sins, from the consequences of sin, which is death from the devil, from the grave, from hell. But there's an order in which he does it. Don't stumble over the fact that Jesus has already saved you and you still sin and you still fall down and you still get mud on your face and you're still going to die. Don't let that make you puzzled about whether he succeeded. Don't let that affect your faith. Because he's not, never intended to get it all finished the first time he came. The second coming will finish what he started the first time. He that has begun a work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But now has Christ been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of them that are asleep. Christians that are dead in the graves, Christ is the firstfruits. Everyone knows that the language of firstfruits in the scripture is a confident and excited language because it means the harvest has begun, the rest is short to follow. This is designed to excite the saints. Say, well, if the first among us have begun to rise from the... If we've begun to get the grains of wheat off the stalks, the harvest has begun. This is the first fruits. And they had a feast of first fruits in which they brought the first of the harvest and made it. And then just shortly after the rest of the harvest came. And that's the language here. Verse 21. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, everyone who's in Adam dies. So also in Christ, everyone who's in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then they that are Christ, then when are they going to rise from the dead? At his coming. That's the divine order of his rule and his reign. He rises and sits on the throne to assert and establish and declare his kingdom. We rise in the last day at his coming to consummate that kingdom. 
We will not rise before his coming. We will not rise after his coming. We will rise at his coming. There's no language in this passage, nor any supporting passage anywhere in the Bible to suggest that this is the first half of his coming, or the secret part of his coming, or the second coming that's really only not the last of his next comings. At his coming, the Bible sees Christ coming, and he looks at Christ coming. And what's going to happen when he comes? The dead will be raised. Now you say, no, he's talking about the rapture of the church. Yes, he is. This is the rapture of the church. This is the rapture of the church. And that's what he's talking about. But I can take you to passage after passage, and we shall, God willing, which will show you that at this same time when the church is raptured, others are going to be raised out of the graves too who are not saints. And it's going to happen at his coming. Now what's going to happen when he appears? The last of his enemies will be put under his feet. And that, if you read on this section of scripture, it will tell you that. Death will be put under his feet. What does that mean? There won't be anybody dying after that. Physical death will be finished after that. Now what does that mean? That means the end of the world. As we know it. Mortality will be swallowed up in victory. There won't be anybody left who has not been brought out of the tombs. There will be nobody to people this earth mortal. There won't be nations who have not faced the judgment and been raised from the dead to come back and people a millennial earth in their mortal bodies. Mortality will be over. Because when Christ comes, death is put under his feet. I don't have time this morning, but... The next week, the Lord willing, and the week after, when we speak of the judgment and the resurrection, we will prove from the scripture that a lot of things are going to happen the same day he comes. But get it settled in, in the order of God, the purpose of Christ's rule to save his people from their sins has a gradual, progressive element. It is a certain thing. It's going to be finished and accomplished. And it's going to be in God's time and with God's order. He didn't plan to raise bodies from the dead, all of them, the first time. He didn't plan to stop Christians from dying the first time. He didn't die the first time so Christians would never again catch a head cold or get sick and die of disease. That was not the primary essential purpose of his first coming. That's the primary purpose of his second coming, to remove all the remains of the curse that are left over in this gradual accomplishment and application of his kingdom. The first coming, he accomplished our redemption once for all. The second coming, he will complete the application of our redemption once for all. And brethren, I submit to you so that you may think about it and study it. That when Jesus Christ comes the next time, they that are in the tombs, all of them will rise. Some under everlasting life and some under judgment. The judgment will be final. The resurrection will be final. The world is going to melt with a fervent heat and be destroyed. And there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth come in its place right then. That's the Bible doctrine. I hope to prove it. But get it straight in your mind that after Jesus comes the next time, there's not going to be a few years for a few other folks to think about it and decide now we'll get repentance. And after Jesus comes the next time, there's not going to be time to talk about the signs of the times. 
When Jesus comes the next time, he's going to finish what he came the first time to finish. And there won't be anything else to finish. The purpose of his second coming is to complete the work of salvation for which he came into the world in the beginning. And nothing else. If you think, if you are thinking that I'm beating a dead horse, I tell you it's not a dead horse. The horse is riding rampantly this week in the, in the wake of what's going on in the Middle East. And there are good people sitting in good pews all over this country and around the world who are being taught that now we're beginning to be able to predict the second coming. And what I'm trying to say to you is that what goes on in the Middle East per se is not what God is all about in the purpose of his son except as it fits into his purpose of getting the gospel to sinners and saving them. The times are the times of Christ's rule. And what he's doing during this period of his rule in the midst of his enemies is subduing those enemies, saving many of them, peopling glory and preparing his church for the hour in which he will return from heaven with all the holy angels, gather the elect from the four corners of the earth and gather the peoples of the earth like sheep and goats and divide them up. When he comes, it will be over and you will be judged. Now I want to draw some quick implications before we stop. One thing I want you to learn from what we basically just introduced is to be patient till the coming of the Lord. That's what the scripture says, doesn't it? Why does that need to be told you? Because you grow weary waiting. Because you grow tempted waiting. Because you are afraid perhaps that somehow God has forgotten you. What happens if the Muslims win? What happens if they conquer the world? What happens if they enforce the Islamic law everywhere. Some of you ladies that won't listen to us when we say dress modestly, you could get into a situation where we don't have to tell you. At least they can get their women modest right fast. What happens if the world is ruled by such? What'll it, how will that affect us? Well, it'll greatly affect us. It'll affect the way we hear the gospel, the opportunities to hear it, the chances to preach. The radio broadcast is over. The Bibles are finished. Catechizing your kids would be multiplied more difficult. But ultimately, what will happen? Not a hair of the head of any of God's people is going to be harmed. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And Christ will accomplish his stated purpose. And he will be using all that to bring that purpose to pass. I have almost more fears of what may happen if we have no trouble beating them. In our country. If everything goes well and we're fed and we don't suffer and we're not humbled, I'm more concerned almost with that than an external difficulty. And I'm not one that hopes that the bad will happen, but I wonder about our spirit and our resolve and our moral fortitude as a nation. Be patient to the coming of the Lord. Justice will be established in the earth, brethren. Don't grow upset and, and unduly panicked when men get by with wickedness. The Lord is writing it in a book. And all the books are going to be opened that day and men are going to be judged out of those books. It's all there. Justice will prevail. We will be saved. 
What the Lord has begun, he will complete. Did Jesus come the first time according to promise? Did anything stop him? Is there any chance he'll fail to come the second time according to promise? Can anything stop him? He that once came and did exactly what prophets said he would do in laying his life down for our sins will come again unto salvation to those that wait for him. Therefore, wait for him. Look to him. Don't wait for peace in the Middle East. Wait for the Prince of Peace. Don't worry about the Soviet Union. Be concerned about your heart. Look and wait for your Savior. Our citizenship is in heaven. From whence we look for a Savior who shall fashion our vile body like unto his glorious body. Therefore, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, let us be careful to be godly in this present world. Be patient to the coming of the Lord. But lastly, make it be clear to you, you may have heard this before, but take it to heart. Your relationship to Jesus Christ as Savior will determine your relationship to him as judge. How you have responded to his first coming will determine where you will stand at his second. In short, if you have not turned from your sins and embraced Christ in all of his glory and demands, and bowed willingly to his lordship, thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. If you are holding back a part of your life, heart and habits from his lordship, you are in great danger. Because when he comes, he will judge you on the basis of whether you obeyed the gospel or not. And on no other basis. Have you settled it? That you are a follower of Jesus Christ in all the ways you understand his words commanded? Is that settled in your heart and conscience? Is there anything you still hold back? I ask you, are you prepared to stand in the day of judgment and with a clear conscience declare, Oh Lord, you can see I have trusted in you. Can you say it? Is it settled? Christ is coming. Get that settled. Get it settled now. Do not presume upon the Lord. Get it settled today. Turn from your sin, from your pride, even from your patient neglect of immediate repentance. You may delay it too long. Run to the refuge. Run to the rock. Run to the Savior. And in that, you'll find peace. And deliverance from the fear of the wrath to come. May God give everyone in this room a heart to believe the gospel. And to embrace the Savior embodied in that gospel. And to wait for him from heaven. May everyone in this room have his hopes deferred and turned from earthly things. And focused upon one heavenly event and one heavenly person. Oh, get out of your dreams, all these temporal earthly things. Let God give them as he will, but set your heart on the one from heaven. 
and to those that do so, he will appear the second time under salvation. May God see that it's sealed in our hearts. Let us bow. Our Father and our God, make your word true to our hearts, how weak and puny we are in explaining it and preaching it. But by your spirit sent from your throne, you're able to subdue hearts and consciences to your will. Lord, glorify yourself today in saving poor sinners and preparing them for the hour of judgment sure to come. Hear us, O Lord. Correct our perspectives, our values, and our thoughts for the sake of your kingdom. Receive our thanks for accomplished redemption and for the solid hope of redemption consummated. Oh, Lord, we long for the day. Instill in us a further longing for the day. As we make our request in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.